Hello, everybody. Welcome to the March 22nd, 2023 QPSC. Madam Clerk, roll call. Trustee Banerjee. Here. Trustee Bouquet. Here. Trustee Esteem. Here. Trustee Stein. Here. Uh, we have a quorum. Thank you. Uh, Madam Clerk, is there any public comment? No, sir. Okay. With that, we'll open as we always do with the purpose of the QPSC. The purpose of the QPSC is established to provide oversight and uh, leadership for medical staff credentialing, review of organizational policies, and monitoring of organizational quality assurance, performance improvement, and safety programs. The QPSC is charged with continuing the practice of direct communication with our medical staff leaders on issues of clinical operations and patient care. Uh, so with that, and with no public comment, we'll move into agenda item A, if that's okay with everybody. <clears throat> Um, this article uh, was uh, an editorial from Don Berwick, one of my, one, one of our little, my heroes here, so uh, uh, always easy to quote him. It's called The Constancy of Purpose for Improving Patient Safety, Missing in Action. It's a, it's a relatively short, rate, pay, uh, short read. It's a two-page editorial. I'll, I'll open this up to my trustees for comments, and then, as always, I'll, I'll actually make some comments as well, which are actually just quoting Mr. Berwick. <laughs> Plagiarism. Yes, I love plagiarism. I'll, uh, yes, ma'am. I'll thank you for the the length of this article. <laughs> I, I strive. <laughs> um, I think that what I got from here was um, something I hear you say all the time: regard all injuries as potentially preventable. Um, and then I think there was a question that was raised. There were a few. Uh, if you're looking for problems, if you're looking and problems are revealed, does that mean we should stop looking? You know, we all know the answer to that is no. Yes, ma'am. But then I think um, there's this beautiful piece about at the in the closing they say persistent investment in a monitoring of change that that has to be one of the goals. And what I appreciate is that it reminds me of our culture of safety survey, which is underway. Everybody listening, make sure you do survey. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. And I think that there's this other piece about reporting, like looking for data is important. I think they also made a point about, um, I should have the quote here so I can say it to me, windows open. There was this part at the end about uh, when you look for the data, whatever. I won't try to quote that. Okay. I, but also when we're relying on self-reporting, that that's not necessarily a fair measure. And I think what I appreciate about the organization and what's happening right now and the investment in culture change is that we can get to eliminating the fear of retaliation for self-reporting. And that is a foundational aspect of being able to really uh, get to prevention and to, to safety because if people are willing to report, um, then you can repair. Yes, ma'am. Thank you for those comments. Trustee Banerjee, Trustee Singh. Yeah, what stood out for me was that where they said that think of all um, harms as preventable, like if you look at that, and then um, um, and, and the new misses are as important as when it, that happens, I, that how much you can learn from the near misses. And that kind of also reminded me of one of the other uh, articles that we've shared before, which says that there are the near misses, there are the actual harms, and then there are things which we don't even count as harms, yeah. which are well, how people like 
within our own system, there might be access issues and where folks fall through the cracks and things that don't categorize. I felt like this was just centering, recentering again that focus for way that we need to bring like full uh, focus into it. Excellent article. Thank you for sharing. That. Yes, ma'am. Trustee saying any comments or I'll go ahead. Got it. So uh, I'll just end by stealing from uh, uh, Ms. Dr. Berwick. <laughs> Uh, just a review for the audience who, who didn't read the article. This article, this editorial was on a recent study which tried to estimate, uh, my mask broke, uh, on the estimate the progress of the patient safety movement. Uh, and and I'm, I'll do a few quotes from uh, Dr. Berg. One, the author's findings are disturbing. At least one adverse event was identified in 23.6% of hospital admissions, a full one in four. And 9% of these emissions included an adverse event that was rated as serious, life-threatening, or fatal. Uh, that's impressive in not, a, in not a good way. Further, overall 22%, 22.7% of the adverse events were judged to be preventable. And as a side note, 30.4% of those advents, adverse events were related to surgical or other related procedures. As a side note, one of our agenda items tonight is surgical site infections. Yeah. So I think that relates to that. Uh, these findings per Dr. Berwick suggest that at best, the safety movement has stalled. Uh, he gave four uh, issues, which my trustees have already commented on, but I'll just repeat for us, uh, four difficulties in tracking patient safety. First, the event rates are highly sensitive to the method of review. Basically, the harder we look for stuff, the more we're gonna find it. He made a statement, which I, I had trouble getting around. I don't know if it's true, but he said it anyways. Voluntary reporting is so unreliable as to be nearly worthless in the calculation of rates. Me too. I, I had a little trouble getting my brain around that one, and I, I, I'll defer to our, our, our quality experts, but he said it nonetheless. Judging preventability is not only difficult, it might be misleading. The more valuable approach is to regard all injuries, as my trustee said, as potentially preventable. Third, safety practitioners in other industries regard uh, uh, near misses with as much attention as actual injuries that was already brought up. And last, which I, I think we're actually doing a decent part on this, but although the use of efficient automated tools for detecting harm in electronic medical records is now well described, few healthcare organizations actually use them. Finding harm remains very costly. And I actually don't even know the budget on what we spend on all these, uh, all these RCAs are, but it has to be pricey for us. In, in, in conclusion, see, uh, per Dr. Berwick, senior executives and boards in healthcare systems today may feel overwhelmed by an onslaught of urgent priorities, equity, preparedness, supply chain shortages, new payment models, staff burnout, to name a few. They may not welcome the duty to push patient safety back to strategic prominence. Nevertheless, first, do no harm, remains a safeguarded obligation for all healthcare and success requires constancy of purpose for improvement. So I, I appreciate that we can continue to have this committee to talk about these things. And there are some big questions, which I got to tell you, I don't even know the answer. Are we in a better place with regard to safety than we were five years ago? It feels like that, but I actually don't know the quantum. So I think, I think as uh, to our quality team, you know, we, we usually track, you know, for two or three months. It might, might be nice to put that in the context of one year or two years or five years. Where we are, where were we five years ago? It feels qualitatively like we're in a better place, but 
it would be nice to put the quant on it. Uh, so with that, if there are no further comments, um, I will close this agenda item. Uh, COO, CO, CMO, any comments? Uh, just also actually in the patient safety report is the annual harm rate for going back to fiscal year 17. And if you do, there is a, you know, compared to fiscal year 2018, there has been a downtrend yes. over the last few years. Thank you. We'll take it where we can get it. Exactly. Um, with that, we will close out item A and we will go to item B, which is the consent agenda. Trustees, it's actually a short consent agenda. I'll note that we are missing minutes from February of 2023. Uh, we, we will get those back into the packet for the next month. We only have items B1 and B2. So um, before entertaining a motion to approve uh, items B1, B2, is there anything that needs to be pulled for discussion? No. Given that, may I entertain a motion to approve the entirety of the consent agenda? I'll move. Sir. Madam Clerk. Trustee Banerjee. Aye. Trustee Bouquet. Aye. Trustee Steen. Aye. Trustee Zine. Aye. Motion passes. All right, we have a consent agenda approved. All right, now is the part where we fulfill one of our purposes here. We engage with our medical staff leaders um, uh, for medical staff reports. We have uh, Dr. Lana Lee, Dr. Idris Afzali, and Dr. Nikki Joshi uh, in the house. Um, dealer's choice, as I like to say. Anyone want to go first? Um, Dr. Lee, you're in the middle. <laughs> okay, that's interesting to know. Um, <laughs> Hi, uh, board. It's nice to see you all tonight. Um, I'm here to present the AHS MEC report um, for community, the Disaster Action Response Team. It's a medical staff committee created in 2022. Their mission was to create and sustain a comprehensive clinical disaster readiness program for all AHS facilities. They recognize that there is much work to be done, but their work thus far includes the list in your report um, below. And the committee looks forward to continued work with nursing and operational leadership to develop a coordinated response to multi-casualty events that can occur during a clinical disaster. For quality, um, our quality committee recognized the Highland Blood Bank and Transfusion Service on their AABB service inspection, which found zero non-conformances. Dr. Ng, chair of the department, recognized that this was, this was considered one of her lifetime achievements. So we congratulated her. For uh, staff and patient experience, um, I'll give this committee an update to our department chair searches. Um, for the emergencies department, I am happy to report an offer has been made to the physician candidate who was recommended by the EM chair search committee. And I will continue to update this committee on the chair search processes for imaging radiology and for orthopedic surgery. We also discussed a summary of patient harm events, recognizing that our healthcare acquired patient harm events are trending downwards this year. Uh, much of the work involved in reducing the risk of healthcare acquired patient harm is done by nurses on our healthcare teams. The MEC supports the resources and budget necessary to complete this work. For patient-centeredness, we looked at our performance and metrics as it relates to our strategic goals. This included our HCAP scores for hospital nursing and doctor communication. We talked about ongoing work um, that we are doing, to, in, which includes review of patient comments with all staff and providers, 
as well as increasing our service recovery efforts during patient admissions. For sustainability, the Department of Pediatrics report was presented by Dr. Pam Sims-Mackey. She uh, talked about how uh, the pediatrics department includes four pediatric outpatient clinics, a well baby nursery, a level two NICU or 24 hour pediatric hospitals coverage. She also spoke about a future effort by the pediatrics department to have a developmental and behavioral pediatric specialist, which we are very much looking forward to. This project is supported by the Bay Area um, Roots and Wings Foundation. And we recognize that it is a very much needed um, service set for the community. And that completes my report and I'm open for questions. Thank you, Dr. Lee. Trustees, any questions of Dr. Earth? Dr. Lee. None? Thank you for your report, Dr. Lee. Thanks. Dr. Zali, how are you this evening? Hello, I am well, um, and good evening to all. Uh, the San Leandro Leadership Committee did not have a meeting this month. I have an abridged uh, and uh, updates from, uh, from San Leandro for you. Uh, under the quality uh, pillar, uh, the Bridge Clinic is moving to San Leandro. Um, and anticipated over the next five to six months, uh, likely timeline because of hiring, uh, as well as uh, for revamping the space in the emergency department fast uh, uh, track area uh, for that bridge clinic. Um, the second item uh, I wanted to mention in, in the quality was uh, uh, some of the order sets and or processes that we use to determine transfers uh, outside uh, of the uh, San Leandro, uh, specifically to Highland, that uh, will need to be reviewed over the next few months. These uh, policies include neurosurgery uh, and uh, Dr. Taft, as we discussed, uh, GI. We're looking forward to updates uh, and, uh, and a standardized process on that as well. The patient and staff experience, uh, previously I had mentioned uh, improved staffing for nursing. Uh, I just wanted to mention as a heads up, uh, the emergency department is struggling with the provider staffing uh, for uh, June, uh, June and July, uh, mainly because of uh, family leads, uh, but we are working diligently to um, uh, use our uh, providers from other sites, specifically Highland. Dr. Wills has been instrumental in helping us uh, uh, move that along to cover some of the gaps in coverage, but I think we will have the upper hand on that in the coming weeks, uh, but wanted to give you all a heads up. Um, the last item I wanted to mention, uh, got an update in the emergency department from Troy Ashford yesterday about the new CT trailer, uh, which is expected to arrive on site within the next week, uh, and then transition into the existing uh, trailer spot on uh, April 4th. And it's expected to be uh, maximum, hopefully maximum of eight hours of downtime. So San Leandro will need to go on divert at that time. Um, and barring any complications, we'll be back online with a, with a newer, nicer, fancier Siemens CT scanner uh, at San Leandro. Um, that'll bridge us to the uh, in-house unit in August. Um, I have no other updates outside of that. Everything else is going smoothly. Now I can answer any questions or any concerns that have come up. Thank you, Dr. Zali. Trustees, any questions or comments for Dr. Zali? Yeah, can you clarify the June-July staffing issue for providers? 
you said something, but it was a little bit hard for me to hear. Yeah, it, it, we have a number of uh, our providers, well, for to be specific, that are going to be on family leave at the same time. Um, so it's kind of like the culmination of, a, of, uh, of events. Um, and so that leaves uh, quite a few uh, shifts that'll be uncovered. Now, these are all full-time uh, providers that'll be on leave uh, essentially at the same time. Um, and so we will be sort of stretched to cover uh, shifts uh, with the existing staff who are taking extra. And then the Highland attendings who generally don't work there will hopefully be able to help with the, with the gaps as well. How many providers are we talking? I'm sorry, once again. How, how many providers is the question? Uh, so four will be on leave. One doc and three APTs. Thanks for that answer that question, Dr. Fellin. Trustee Banerjee, any comments, questions? Yeah, I had a question. For the bridge clinic, do we have a timeline? I know that it's been fast tracked, but is it the next few months or... Um, um, what, what is the readiness on that front uh, for Sam Leandro? Do we have a timeline? Oh, you might, your line is muted, uh, Dr. Sal. Uh, it's the next few months, as, uh, as I understand it. We're currently in the process of hiring uh, the staff for the clinic, um, and we have not yet made decisions on, on who will be the hirees. Uh, but I could give you uh, a more definitive timeline on that at the next board meeting. Thank, thank you. And I also wanted to follow up. I know that in the past you've brought up about having like medical social workers and the ED or case management. And I know that that was in flux. Do you know, has that been prioritized? Yes, the position is, is posted and, I, and I've, I've seen the posted position. There have been no hires yet. Uh, so uh, the hope is that by mid-April we'll have the, the pilot launched for the social worker in the emergency department. Wonderful. Thank you. Of course. Tristy, saying any questions or comments no. for Dr. Vizali? Wonderful. Uh, Dr. Vizali, thank you for those uh, for that presentation. Um, thank you. Good evening, Dr. Joshi. Hi. Good evening, everyone. Thank you for ha having me today. Um, I'm not sure if my report is in the board book. I wasn't able to find it. Maybe it was just me, but either way, I have my report. It, it, it is. It's, it, yeah, page 75 of 120. It's in there. Oh, okay, great. I don't want you to miss anything I have to say. <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, under community, want to highlight that actually the day is for tomorrow. The Joint Alameda Healthcare District Board and HS Leadership Planning Committee will be held. So really exciting and looking forward to that meeting. I will be there um, in addition to two other, a few other representatives from the medical staff. Um, wanna also highlight under quality that our perioperative services dyad has been restructured and launched uh, within the last month. It's being led by the chair of anesthesia and they've already made a lot of really great and important progress. During our MEC meeting, we had updates regarding the operating room, some functionality, sterile processing. And so I think that the updates that were given were important specific. And I think this diet structure is gonna be value added for our patients. We had a presentation by the Biomed Refresh Program um, where they gave us an overview of their ongoing projects and what they will be anticipating to cover and provide to Alameda Hospital over the next five year period. Um, we also review the quality and safety committee report. We found some good opportunities 
in addressing blood culture contamination, stimulation-based training, and improving the organ referral rate. Um, and then under sustainability, we had some good discussions of what future service lines can look like at Alameda Hospital. Service lines would be an expansion of services offered to the patients in ways that are strategic. So looking forward to that. And under sustainability, we also had a good conversation about our operating room and um, infrastructure. And so that was an important part of discussion. And I'm happy to answer any other questions. Thank you for your report, Dr. Joshi. Trustees, any questions of Dr. Joshi? Okay. Yes, sir. Trustee Zane, then Trustee curious, um, What sorts of services to patients do you mean? So under, uh, under service lines? Yeah. So there is some really great work being done to look at, for example, cardiology, which was launched um, in the past of looking at how to combine services that more closely mimic how patients flow in the system. So a combination of ambulatory care, inpatient imaging. So that model is going to be applied. Another example that would be considered for the future, for example, is orthopedics, uh, podiatry, and physical therapy. And so at this point, um, the idea is to look at what service lines are needed, what would be value added for our patients to follow this cardiology model. And um, so what would be the strategic next move? So that's kind of where we are right now. Trustee Banerjee. Yeah. And I wanted to make sure, uh, Trustee Sign, do you have the details for tomorrow's meeting? Because we will be having another member added to the uh, operation. In to the um, Alameda Strategic Planning Committee. Um, in the air, okay, so that's, uh, but would you, I, I heard that you would be a member of that I, committee. Or, yeah. So yeah. Um, just make sure that he's added on the um, invite list. I see David Sion, yeah. you are on the invite for the Perfect, thank you. Trustees, any other comments or questions for Dr. Joshi? Barring none, doctors, thank you for your, your commitment and your presentation. So with that, we'll close out item C. And that moves us right into item D. While we're cooking, we're moving quickly. Uh, this is the Patient Safety, Regulatory Affairs, and Quality TNM Dashboard. Uh, Anna Torres, our VP of Quality, uh, usually leads this with support by Darshan Graywall, our System Director of Patient Safety, Nilda Perez, our System Director of Regulatory Affairs, and of course, Annette Johnson, who's our Quality Analytics manager. So, so I will step in here. Ms. Apologies, Torres I didn't know is, about that. So, so our um, CMO will be uh, leading us in. So I will um, start off, off as off. I will be giving the patient safety report on, on behalf of Ms. Graywell um, tonight, and then I'll hand it off to my colleagues, um, Milda and Annette. So I'm um, starting with the patient safety report tonight. Um, one of the items that I wanted to call out for the month of, month of February is that our harm rate um, went down to 3%. That is actually our goal. And as you can see in the executive summary, that this is the fourth month in a row where we've seen a, a decline. So in um, having a discussion earlier with um, Ms. Graywell, I was curious about, you know, what are, what are her ideas on um, what is driving that decrease in, in harm? 
And um, there was a few things that we discussed today. Number one, which is um, strong leadership engagement, that she's seen that across the organization in terms of um, from um, uh, leadership engagement from all disciplines in engaging on what are the processes we need to put into place in order to reduce harm. Um, and that, and the, um, and sitting here, thank you for contributing that. Also, the monthly operating reviews, because um, in each of those meetings, the harms are reviewed every single month, and, and there's action plans um, that are developed. Also, um, strong um, physician leadership engagement in that as well. Um, and also, um, because of that, there's a sense of um, a, a drive to be very proactive in reducing harms. And we're seeing them, we're talking about them, and, and we're designing programs um, in order to reduce them. So certainly wanted to call that out and, and really congratulate everyone who is, is engaging in this work. Four months in a row, let's keep it up. Um, we've hit our goal at 3%, but let's keep driving it down. Um, there, in the month of February, there was one harm event that was classified as an H, and just um, for recollection, um, that is classified as an error that could have necessitated intervention to sustain life. Now, that particular um, uh, situation is under deep review. Um, we, I know that, that um, it is underway in QRC in under review, but I think one of the key um, situations that have arisen out of this discussion is that it is a, a, the patient that was involved a very high-risk patient population. And so it comes down to once we recognize uh, risk, how do we have that conversation between multiple um, uh, attendings at a specialty level in order to make a plan together? So that's really what's driving um, uh, the conversation of that event. Um, now, the, on the other hand, there we're also seeing an increase in our patient relations events. That has been events um, that has been a trend over the last few years. Um, and again, I, I was um, working with our patient safety team today uh, to really get their thoughts on what is driving that as well. And there were three buckets that that keep coming to the fore. One is around um, a consistent theme on um, patients' perceptions of their, the quality of care not being met. And oftentimes, um, it might be a perception of uh, an appropriate medication or treatment is not being made available to them. Second bucket is around access. And, and we've heard about access um, challenges before and, and, and will be having that presentation uh, from our ambulatory um, colleagues in, in the April meeting. So you'll hear what we're doing around that. And then lastly, the last bucket was around um, uh, the, the bucket of staff professionalism where patients are might uh, feel like they're not being heard, they're not being listened to, you know, and, and it's hard to know what is driving that, but uh, one of the items that has come up is the sense of, you know, now many, uh, you know, a few years into the pandemic, is there fatigue and burnout? Is that driving that? That was a, a question that I think bears more exploration. And then, um, as noted already by Trustee Esteen, um, we are in our score survey um, right now. Um, we, it was extended until the, the 27th, and we're promoting it in all avenues in order to really hear the voices of our staff. So with that, I will hand it over to Ms. Perez for the Regulatory Affairs Report. 
Professor Torney, may I stop and ask sure, questions? And for trustees, and so this is, and sorry, apologies for tough questions, uh, but they're related to the, the Berwick article. So because I just, I don't feel like I have this knowledge myself. What percentage of all these, of these uh, harm rates and events are self-reported versus auto-triggered? I don't know the answer. So, I, sorry, so what we can, we can get that. Question. Yeah, we can we can get that um, around what is called yeah. from um, our our system versus what is entered in as a Midas alert voluntarily. I, I, I got to tell you, I'm just curious still about yeah. Dr. Berwick's statement mm -hmm. that voluntary reporting is so unreliable it has to be nearly worthless. I, I myself don't. That doesn't jive with me. So I, that that's an interesting question. And, the, and then my second question again relates to one of his articles. Do we track near misses? Um, we we do track near misses. It is a dimension in our in our Midas um, system to say this is a near miss. Now I think this also goes to your first question: is is there a way that it's automated? Yeah. And that's I, I think that's the question. I, I'm not sure about, okay. and I can follow up with our patient safety team. But uh, and then maybe next month, just, just uh, yeah. to loop closure, just to of let course, us know, because yeah. I, I have no idea what that answer is. Dr. Bouquet, if, if you wouldn't mind, Dr. Tornaveni, I can chime in on, on of course. this. I, I'm sorry, I'm dressed down a little bit today. <laughs> um, so Dr. Bouquet, I um, just be as being a patient safety leader for many years, I try to um, sort of research on what percentage of events are self-reported across the nation. And yep. there's no concrete data to really put a, a finite number on, but the estimated reportable events in a in an incident reporting system only equates to about five to ten percent of overall deviations in care whether it's a near miss whether it's an actual harm but the it's only estimated that up to from five to ten percent of things are reported most things that do not cause harm or can be easily corrected or maybe are not even recognized as potential um, deviations most people do not report them. So even though we get eight to 10,000 safety alerts a year, can you imagine that only equates to 10% of the things that actually happen at the front line, which is really mind blowing um, that that much goes unnoted. To your second question about near misses, um, uh, with, with the leadership of Annette um, Johnson, we really redesigned Midas this past year to really promote um, utilizing the tool to input near misses or FYI type of events. And, oh. and so what, what we strategized is if we encourage that, we can also track and trend that data through our BI reports. That's the dashboard that's available to everyone in the organization of unit specific details of every safety alert for a rolling 12 months. So that drives performance at the unit level, basically. You can see what your trends are, what kinds of events are happening on your unit, if they're low risk, high risk. So um, Annette's uh, really spent a lot of energy and work to create that, and that's to promote, tell us your near misses so we can track and trend and see what the vulnerabilities are that lie within our organization. So yes, we do track near misses, they are publicly available for every in, uh, employee in this organization. And again, um, most of our events come through the incident reporting versus other forums or other mechanisms uh, of reporting. 
Thank you, Ms. Graylow. I'm going to ask you, put you on the spot. What's your opinion on Dr. Berwick's statement that voluntary reporting is so unreliable as to be practically worthless? I'm not sure I agree with it. I, I don't believe that I believe that there's a cultural value watching how many self-reports we've done over yeah. the past four years. So what, mm -hmm. give, me your, give me your two cents. I think, I think um, on the transformation that AHS is currently on, it's extremely valuable because when we have um, uh, psychologically safe forms like RCAs and we really encourage people to be not only part of telling us what went wrong, but part of the solution, people will be encouraged and empowered to report because they will see change happening on things that impact them every single day. They will have a voice to be part of a positive change to make it safer for not only patients, but employees. So I disagree with that statement because our transformation has proven that that is not happening, that just the opposite is happening here at AHS because actually RCAs actually bring a sense of uh, increased engagement, uh, uh, creative idea sharing and improvement efforts that engage our frontline staff in the solutions. Yes, sir. Of course, always. You know, uh, something that is um, tangential, but I think it's related. Today on our desktop chat, we were talking about the culture safety survey and some of the staff put in the chat, they'd heard that because you could do the survey more than once, which I'm not sure that you can, but they said because they've heard this, that they believe that people are intentionally putting in multiple negative surveys to draw down the scores. Huh. And um, one, I not heard that. Yeah. And you know, I've been told by IT that in fact they can't do multiple. But my response when asked was, I I don't think that that's going to be a problem because one, I don't, I believe that people have good intentions. I, I want to presume goodness yes. and not that they're going to try to sandbag us. This isn't Chicago. Um, and you know, vote early vote often, but I just I, I don't think that that is what's happening here. I think people are giving us the benefit of their true feedback, and that's the way that we're going to receive this survey. And so I think it's contextual, given uh, Ms. Dr. Berwick's uh, comments around you know um, the reporting, you know, and, and the value of it. I just I disagree with him as well. Yes, sir. Trustee Bucat. Yes, sir. I know Don Berwick. Don yes. Berwick is a friend of mine, <laughs> and. I'm, I, my interpretation of his comment was that from a broader perspective in terms of interpreting what's going on in the whole system and maybe not an individual institution, it's statistically unreliable because yeah. you know there's no way to know from what was said that yeah. there's so many things unreported. But what I wonder about is the converse of that. How would one have some surveillance system that would be you know forced march to reporting? Right. That wouldn't work either. So yeah. it's a very difficult thing to do. And I think we Obviously, we're trying our best to do it, but we can't have video surveillance watching everything. Everyone does the mandatory reporting and yes, punishment. Sir. You know, that won't work either. Yes, so sir. We have to make it work, I think, as yes. uh, Trustee yeah. Cyan, I'm going to need an autographed picture of him for my. <laughs> 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 Can I just I'll ask I'll send you the commentary. receipts from his campaign contribution. Yes, sir. Yeah. <laughs> I really appreciate uh, that your emphasis on we cannot force people and monitor and, you know, camera our way into it. Um, because you end up on opposite extremes, right? Where voluntary reporting doesn't happen enough, mandatory reporting becomes something 
that people worry about and question is problematic. And I think it also speaks to the culture of the institution. And what is it that we are creating? Are we creating skepticism from leaders who don't believe in negative feedback? Because what does that then create if people get feedback and it's not believed? And are we creating apathy in our workforce so that people- Gray, acute care towers fixed floor nursing patients. Sorry. Cold Gray, acute care towers fixed floor nursing patients. Yeah. Are we creating apathy in our workforce so that people feel like reporting doesn't create any change. And, you know, finding the healthy uh, process to kind of get through all of that. So devices and technology and statistics help. I appreciate that the MIDAS system has been updated. Um, we have to continue to encourage. And this is where really safe spaces and, and safe approaches is all we can try to do. Yes, ma'am. Trustee Banerjee. Yeah, I, I do think that, like, Reporting, voluntary reporting is such a core component of a just culture. And like you said, what resonated is it's not just people reporting, but if you feel you have ownership in building the solution, then there's the engagement of it. So not only are you just like, uh, you know, identifying what it is, but if one is also engaged in the solution making process, uh, uh, that changes uh, the whole engagement part of it and also builds that culture of continuous improvement and using improvement science to think of documenting what worked, what didn't, like how can we, you know, uh, customize it to local context, but also uh, do that. So I don't know if I'm jumping ahead or not, but sometimes when you speak about the, uh, also following from Don Berwick's writing, which he said that consider all harm as preventable, if you think of, when you look at risk, event volumes by month, sometimes the biggest uh, bar is uh, the column is patient behavior. And sometimes it's provider and staff behavior. Like it, it keeps flipping from time to time. And I've seen that also. So when we, when these things came up uh, in Dr. Tonovenis, uh, that how, what kind of things do you like, are we understanding, I'm, I'm guessing we are, at your level, understanding like what are some of those behaviors that might be like which are prevalent, or you see trends around it, or how could because those things are manageable, right? If we bring light and heat to the situation, like both uh, sharing what's happening and then also accountability into it, not in a punitive sense, but in a sense of like this is a growth opportunity for us to show like what how we can do better so that provider or staff. Behavior is not like adding to our risk. Is that a question for me, Dr. Uh, Trustee? Yeah, I wanted to know, like, you, are you seeing? Because one of the things was yeah. like, we don't quite understand what that staff behavior thing is, but yeah. at your level, are you seeing like granular trends and like actual uh, right. you know, um, specific things that are again and again causing risk? Well, um, just uh, just as a uh, as far as the patient portion of it, um, we have seen a lot of increase in our behavioral health patient population, um, and even more so. Uh, historically, it was maybe more predominant at our Highland 
campus, but now it is um, even in, at the San Leandro and Alameda ED campuses. And of course, John George is, you know, that, that, that's just a given, but our overall patient population has more behavioral health um, uh, issues than maybe in prior years. I think the, I think the pandemic has also impacted our staff um, perhaps the, the, the level of patience a person may have or they're impacted because we're short-staffed or there's a lot of travelers. So I think, I think just the dynamics of healthcare and the impact of the pandemic and what it's done to overwhelm a healthcare provider or any level of, of, um, of the workforce it, it does really push a person to a point where maybe they're a little bit more, you know, they're not as more, they're not as tolerant maybe as they were once as compared to pre-pandemic. And I'm thinking that those factors have played a part in the data that we see. Um, because as you see from the grievances, our patients are also more demanding than they have been in prior years and, and Jan Robertson has actually been in this role for almost 17, 18 years. So her, to her understanding of the trends with the kinds of grievances we're seeing is very factual and, and evidence-based because she's been in the same field for so long. She says that the patients are actually very different as well over these past two to three years and what they expect from us as a healthcare system. Um, so I think it, it it it's a little bit more complicated, and they sort of play on each other, <laughs> uh, and that's basically the only sort of rationale we can see the commonality with the trends in the data. Well, thank you for that uh, discussion, and um, again, we'll keep having it. Ms. Perez, good evening. Good evening, Dr. Wood. Good evening, board. Um, happy to deliver a succinct report for you this evening. Um, my summary is on page 80 of the Open Session Board Book, and on page 88, I will go through the details. From a regulatory perspective, um, was, um, there were some wonderful um, outcomes and activities and wins this past reporting period. We had no visits from CDPH, um, no complaints that required investigation. We had two self-reported events, which we delivered in early February. But we, the highlight that I also want to talk about is what Dr. 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 Uh, Lana Lee talked about, which is the Highland Blood Bank and Transfusion Services. Um, they had their biennial accreditation inspection by the Association for the Advancement of Blood and Biotherapeutics. And not only do they look at the management of blood in the, in the lab, but they also look at the management of blood in the delivery to our patients. And I have to say, to have zero findings in our transfusion and blood management practices is a huge outcome. I'm so happy for Dr. Ying, but I'm equally happy for the nursing staff that delivers blood transfusions and administration to patients perfectly. There were, there were the vital statistics, the vitals were taken, the documentation was there, everything that you wanna see in a tight process. And so kudos to the lab, but also kudos to our nursing staff that delivered that blood safely to our patients. So that was a huge achievement. And we had that visit between March 6th and March 7th. And then um, we had one joint commission complaint um, from January, which we were able to resolve with the joint commission. Uh, no further action is required. And that was a, a collaborative effort with our emergency department. And we're very happy with that outcome. 
uh, we also had an unannounced laboratory survey at Alameda Hospital. And this is our, our three-day survey. At the end of that survey, we received five recommendations for improvement, which is five out of over 250 standards with elements of performance attached. So that is an excellent outcome, especially because services in Alameda are very concentrated. It's a smaller campus. So that achievement is really, uh, really noteworthy. And again, also when you have an unannounced survey, it's one thing when you know they're coming. It's another thing when you wake up that morning and they just show up on your doorstep and you have to perform. And we perform, obviously they perform well on every day. And that's what we like to see and that they were able to demonstrate that during that visit, which is really outstanding. Um, we had some follow-ups on a couple of joint commission uh, events. One was a Sentinel event at, at John George um, from last year. Actually, that's actually been completed. We submitted our final data and monitoring and we're really pleased with the outcome. It's very, very inherent that they have executed that corrective action plan solidly. And then we also had uh, the same as the aforementioned with the uh, joint commission event, with the other event, which was also a joint commission event. Um, we had a different event at the Highland Emergency uh, Department, which again, they also submitted solid data and um, we had just wrapped that one up. Uh, so we're very happy with the outcome on that, that there's real commitment for improvement in the Highland Hospital Emergency Department with that, as well as John George. That's the end of my report. Unless there's any questions. Ms. Perez, uh, trustees, any questions of Ms. Perez? Just huge congratulations yes. to Dr. Ng and the nursing staff and the team, like amazing. Ms. Perez, I have a couple, yes, congratulations definitely to that team, that's super big. Um, a couple of questions, uh, Ms. Perez. Number one, the Alameda Hospital uh, Unannounced Joint Commission Lab Survey, does this put us back onto a triennial? So they, they or, or give us timeline for when they might come back. Lab surveys are every two years. Oh, got it. So they're good. Um, actually, between uh, I was actually charting out, and I think pretty much with all of our our different separate HCO, um, our separate programs under Joint Commission, we pretty much can count to see the Joint Commission probably every year going forward. Yeah, every year. <laughs> I think so. So on, on that issue, uh, Ms. Perez, it's March twenty uh, second, and uh, where are they? And how is your team doing in this perpetual state of? Uh, I don't know, I'm not gonna put anxiety on you, but I mean, everyone's getting ready for it. So where are they? <laughs> well, that's, that's a, actually, that's a good question. Uh, they are still behind. They said that they would be hopefully caught up by the end of the first quarter of this year. So we, essentially we have nine more days uh, for them to get caught up. In our area and among our peers, uh, we've seen a few surveys pop up, but no one has been surveyed on time. That doesn't mean that they would not be caught up in the next few weeks and we would see them, but we do um, not have our survey scheduled at this point. Our team is working still to try to just hardwire good practices with all of the operational leaders. This week we have Joint Commission Resources visiting us and doing an assessment, um, just kind of a survey of how things look, you know, on a cursory review because we've been doing a lot of work with the leaders on auditing and monitoring and we'd like, uh, you know, just an objective. Uh, first glance to say how they think we're doing and they've given us some additional opportunities and some areas where we still need to continue to work. I, I feel pretty um, I feel pretty comfortable that if we don't have a uh, uh, if we don't have a solid or I should say if we're not able to fully demonstrate compliance in an area, I do feel like we can speak to an improvement process. And I do 
think that we can demonstrate some improvement over time. So I'm, I'm feeling that, you know, every day that they're not here is a gift. And I think it, it's in our favor. I, I, if I were to, uh, to say that, I think, you know, they will be here um, in the next nine days. I, I don't believe that they will be. I think we're still catching up. No one has had a survey on time. Our closest partner, I think they said their survey was two months late. And to refresh us, this will be a four-day on-site review, correct? Yes, this will be a full team for four days. Um, it, I expect the size of the team to minimally be eight people, six to eight people. Got it. Okay. Uh, your board is available to you should you need them for the leadership sessions. Yes, thank you so much. Trustees, any other questions or comments for Ms. Perez? Thank you, Ms. Perez. Uh, good evening, Ms. Johnson. Hmm. I'm sorry. I'm so busy sharing screen, I forgot to unmute. My apologies. All good. All right. Um, Let's get started. So um, when we take a look at our harm rate, we are um, unfortunately uh, above our minimum goal of a 10% reduction from our baseline. This is largely driven by falls. Um, this is sort of the number one harm that we're seeing across the system. However, the system is really working on falls. So we have a, a lot of um, opportunity. They're working very hard on mobility with, with the idea being that if we can assess and maintain mobility, we will, uh, that's not only better for our patients and reduces their likelihood of falling, but also makes it easier, um, sort of shortens up their length of stay so, um, so that they're not at risk in the hospital as long as they are. We're also really working on hardwiring hourly rounding with the idea being that if um, our staff are in there, making sure that they have their, their getting assistance to the toilet, have their possessions within reach, there's less likelihood that the patients need to get out of bed unsupervised, right? So they can, again, reduce the risk of fall. The other thing that I would really like to point out is sort of a win, although we've seen an uptick in harm sort of in the winter months as we move into cold and flu season, is we have gone 90 days without a collapsy event. And so for those of you we weren't aware, we sort of had a, a spike in collapses early on in the fiscal year. We're now seeing that turnaround. There's been a lot of hard work that's been done from our ICU infection prevention team, our nursing staff from Dusty and Lori to really drive those down. Dr. Elliott um, has also been helping out with hardwiring interdisciplinary rounds, really looking at device necessity. So removing those devices when they're not needed as well as maintaining um, our insertion sites so that we don't expose our patients to infection. So it's pretty exciting to see that we're at 90 plus days. So <laughs> when we move on to our hand hygiene compliance, this is again a uh, success story. We're seeing our compliance increase as, as we increase our auditing. So we're having more and more audits um, each month as we continue to aim for our target of 200 audits per unit or per patient care area. Um, for our acute care facilities. And um, not only are we improving in December, but this improvement trend continues through January and February in our preliminary data that we're reviewing now internally. When we move on to our ambulatory access metrics, uh, only one of four is currently at target for the year. We sort of saw an increase in 
access for our established patients for both primary and specialty care under third next available in October through December. Again, as we entered into cold and flu season, we do see improvement in our preliminary data in January and February for these metrics. Um, also, when we take a look at our specialty care backlog, um, this is neither improving nor decreasing uh, or in increasing or decreasing. It, it appears that we sort of for every referral we schedule, we get a new one. So we haven't had a really a chance to bring the number down, but we are moving patients through the system. Um, and uh, um, we sort of saw a small decline again in our continuous assigned patients seen in primary care uh, as we moved into the winter months, but hopefully that will reverse itself um, as we get through cold and flu season. Um, when we move on, to all-cause readmissions continues to outperform our goal. Um, we're seeing really tremendous performance from San Leandro. Highland is also doing very well. Our only real area of opportunity when it comes to readmissions is Alameda. And I think this has more to do with sort of the age of their patients and that many of them transition to um, skilled nursing facilities and then they sort of return from those skilled nursing facilities. So I think that's just the next area to work on, I think. We've done a great deal of work on supporting our complex and chronic care patients, making sure that they're connecting up and being sort of managed, um, not only for when they arrive in the inpatient, but managed in between in the in our primary, linking our primary care um, with our care management teams to really help with that, as well as looking at substance abuse referrals for patients who have that as a conditional uh, comorbidity. Um, as well as working with internal and external partners to make sure our patients have access to medications, our homeless patients have um, beds, uh, beds from e either from a hotel um, to recover in. So it's been, it's been a lot of work. It took a couple of years to get all that stuff in place and we're starting to see the real um, benefit of that coming together. Um, our adult maintenance, I'm sorry, was there a question? Our adult maintenance, uh, health maintenance, this is really looking at how many of our patients that are, uh, that are assigned to us are being receiving their um, screening and preventative care measures. This was steadily improving for six months. December was the first month where we didn't see an improvement. Um, it didn't really slide, but it didn't improve. Um, and again, I think that has a lot to do with cold and flu season. And our ambulatory teams, as well as um, some of our value-based care teams uh, are really working on innovating to reach out to these patients from um, having promotional events to even walk-in hours for mammograms. So that when patients are here, we if for another visit, let's get them in to get the mammogram done. To even looking at evening and weekend clinics to help promote and get patients in to see the care that they need to have. Um, for ED, we uh, are we've throughout this fiscal year we've been elevated beyond our goal. Um, and I know there's a tremendous amount of work that's going on, and we're starting to see some improvement um, until we hit cold and flu season. Uh, we're working on, uh, there's been an improvement in, um, we're working on a contract to lease uh, skilled nursing beds and hotel beds for our patients that require post-discharge placement to help move them into the appropriate level of care and make room for our new patients. There's a utilization management committee that's working on making sure that we're leveraging our transfer center and, and getting our patients 
into the right level of care and utilizing Highland San Leandro and Alameda to its maximum capacity, as well as I know that there's been additional staffing assigned to Alameda and San Leandro, which has really helped um, with the facilitate the movement of patients. And then um, most recently, just hot off the presses, Dusty told me today that the nursing team just did a handoff Kaizen to really look at how can they decrease the time from when they know a bed is available for the patient to getting the patient into that bed. So not a, with the goal of getting that down um, consistently to 45 minutes. Um, so pretty exciting stuff uh, underway. Lastly, we're gonna take a look at um, patient experience. Um, we're seeing a three month improvement again until we hit November uh, or December, I'm sorry. Uh, Again, the strategies here really are about hardwiring hourly rounding uh, so that patients can uh, not only have their possessions and, and be toileted for safety, but also that there's a chance for the staff to connect with our patients, to communicate with them and to sort of set expectations about what to what is happening and what to expect. Because we know that when patients don't know that creates anxiety and that's the number one dissatisfier with patient experience. Um, also, we're really working on fine tuning leader rounding so that we can really make sure that those, that when our leaders are connecting with our patients, that they are really giving a chance to understand sort of the challenges that the patients are facing and um, pro provide any service recovery real time at that time. And then GIFT, uh, really working on that, hardwiring that service standard uh, to connect with our patients and um, driving accountability um, with, uh, we're requiring our our uh, leaders to review their comments, not just in inpatient, but also across ED and some of our other care settings, to review those comments that patients take the time to give us when they're being surveyed by press gaining, and, and when there is an opportunity within those comments to make sure that we actually have a plan of correction in place that is implemented to address that, right? Because that's a gift to us where they really give us insight as to what our patients are looking for. And so you can see that it's a slow, steady climb for our nursing communication and a slow, steady climb for our overall likelihood of recommending. We just had a little weevil bobble there at the end in December, which might be, you know, sort of related to the holidays and some inherent issues with um, staffing around the holidays. And that concludes my report. Are there any questions? Thank you, Ms. Johnson. Trustees, any questions of Ms. Johnson? Trustee Banerjee? Yeah, just, I mean, no question, but the specialty backlog is really something um, you know, it is. Care and for depot care, as as the report says, but you know, it is like uh, treatment delayed is uh, you know causes such incredible impact. That's where really about how that. Yeah, I agree. Ms. Johnson, here's my question. Sorry for asking all these hard questions. This is our true North metric dashboard. There are 11 items on this dashboard. We're entering Q4, we're green in two of the 11. Were we too aspirational in selecting our targets? Sorry, big one. Yeah, I think, you know, this, I think we were a little aspirational in setting our targets. Um, and I think it comes from a desire to really serve our patients. Agreed. <laughs> I don't like red. <laughs> you and <me> both. <laughs> okay. Trustees, any other comments? Okay. 
With that, uh, appreciate you quality team as always. Uh, we're gonna close out item D and we're gonna go into kind of our marquee presentation this evening. This is surgical side infections. This is Dr. Deborah Ellis, who's gonna be presenting to us. She's our director of infection prevention and uh, we'll be going here. Dr. Ellis, if we can do this in about 15, that would be great. Is that possible? I'll shoot for that. Thank you, Dr. Ellis. Okay. The, all right, so um, this is, oh, uh, thank you very much for allowing me with this presentation this evening on a lot of the hard work that we've been doing behind the scenes or in the shadows. So infection prevention, mm -hmm. surgical site infections, we're gonna be going over and some contributing factors, the task force and the work where we, we have done and where we are now. So I'll take this opportunity to kind of do a shameless plug, if you can say that, for infection prevention. Um, uh, as you can see, infection prevention really is a line-in of our professional practice standards with incorporating uh, patient safety as part of the continuum of care, not only in the acute care setting, but across uh, all of the specialty areas that we are um, currently um, uh, delivering to our community. So as part of, uh, we've started our uh, diversity and equity and inclusion roadmap also. Um, it's going to be considered uh, the DNA for our organization to keep the ongoing focus on critical efforts, engage in local chapters to form initiatives around DEI. So one of that is our data stratification, and we do not have data stratification, but we are working on that right now. So a little bit about infection prevention. We do uh, surveillance, um, HAI surveillance is healthcare associated infection surveillance. This is something that the patient might have picked up within one of our facilities due to the care that we have uh, rendered to the patient. Um, we help determine contributing risk factors, we perform, perform active audits on processes and procedures, and passive surveillance, which will track infections after they have occurred, and then we analyze them to find, well, where were our opportunities that we missed? And HAIs are part of our value-based purchasing and our California's Quality Incentive Program. And as Ms. Johnson said earlier, it's part of our harm index on our true north metric dashboard. So today we're uh, concentrating on one of our more complex uh, surveillance that we perform. Because surgical site infections, it's um, something that can increase morbidity, cause patient harm, possibly permanent, permanent patient harm. It has an annual cost, estimated cost, of about 3.3 billion and it extends hospital stay. Right now, AHS is experiencing a little bit more than national on our surgical site infections. Oh, sorry, one too far. So as you can see here, these are the uh, procedures that we have to monitor and as part of public reporting transparency, we use the reporting portal NHSN uh, to report into, and then all of these other entities pull that data out of that portal. We give them access and they pull that information. So as you can see for our centers for Medicare, we have two 
procedures that we uh, report for CDPH. We have 23 procedures that we do that we report. Our True North metrics look at all of our procedures. Some procedures we have to follow for 30 days post-surgical. For some, we have to follow 90 days post-surgery. You're like, well, what is a surgical side infection? So we categorize them into three categories, superficial, deep incisional, and organ space. Although we count all three, the reported entities really focus on the deep incisional and the organ space because these infections tend to be associated with pre-surgical and intraoperative processes. And it also are procedures or infections that can result in additional procedures going back to the uh, OR, possibly permanent patient harm or an extended hospitalization. And so we utilize standard definitions that are uh, 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 by uh, NHSN. For the procedure codes, we use the coding procedure that is used, and then we come up with a standardized infection ratio, which is a weighted risk factor calculation that allows us to trend and compare to similar facilities within the state and nationwide. So the bottom line is, why is my bottom line not coming up? The bottom line is that it actually. Yeah, no, there, it is. there we go. Okay. Negatively impacts patient related outcomes. Our public reporting means less business, could mean less business. And these um, uh, procedures and these SSIs are part, also part of our grading system that could eventually uh, lead into costing. Um, the healthcare system money. So infection prevention, we consider ourselves not revenue producers, but we're revenue protectors because you really cannot budget for an, a, a, a healthcare associated infection. So our work is to try and identify where are the risks, where are the opportunities and what can we do if we know there is an opportunity that we could be, prevent. So AHS currently for our SSIs, uh, surgical side infections, we're a little bit above av uh, uh, um, uh, national. As you can see, the red line there is where national would be. We all aim for one. If you're below one, you're doing better than national. We aim for 0.59 is what we aimed for because the CMS data shows that more than 80% of hospitals like size and similar and across the nation perform at this level. Right now, you could interpret this SIR as 41% more than predicted because we have factors that are reported and they do say, you know what, for your hospital, for your size, for it being teaching, for the procedures you perform, we predict that you should only have within this quarter probably seven, but we have more. So that's when we get above more than predicted. What we did is we took the opportunity as we're doing part of our surveillance to do deep dive into our surgical procedures. And as you can see here, the surgical procedures where we're seeing most of our SSIs are in our colon resections, exploratory laps, 
our open reductions and our small bowels. So intra-abdominals are in there uh, three out of the four. The other thing that these four have in common, they tend to be in our trauma patients. Gunshot wounds to the stomach, uh, 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 open fracture reductions or uh, motor vehicle accidents, colon resections are all part that we see in our um, trauma patients. So drilling down further, we see these are some of the multifactorial and multidisciplinary things that all lead into a surgical outcome. You have many factors that could lead into one thing could lead to a failure. We're not keeping our eyes on it. So we did a focus study on those surgical procedures where we were seeing um, uh, our high number of uh, SSIs. And our analysis identified two major buckets of opportunities, which was your surgical prophylaxis. And I'll talk about the other one in the next slide. But in our surgical pro prophylaxis, we found that we were doing the right dose. Most of the times we were doing the right antibiotic. Right time is where we actually found a very big area of opportunity. So we worked on that as a rapid improvement project to make sure or ensure that the patient was receiving the antibiotic on time so that they could, it could have activity before the incision. The challenge was that our trauma patients are going directly into the OR most of the time. So by the time you hang that antibiotic um, and you have that uh, um, in the surgical procedure, uh, it was not enough time before incision. So we uh, did a deep dive and a rapid improvement in that area. The other risk factor we found was uh, what we call the chlorhexidine baths not occurring. This is a decontamination of the skin. So we leveraged the, uh, the uh, electronic medical record and we educated on standard of practice. And now we have that that is occurring all across the board. Educated on the night before and the morning of surgery that the patient will receive a, a CHG bath. The other risk factors that were contributing, but not as much as the two that we mentioned and did a little deeper dive into it, is environmental, traffic control within the OR. We need to do a better job of traffic control. Temperature and humidity in the OR um, has been a challenge uh, for uh, quite a few of our, our facilities. Um, surgical attire also um, is one of the things that we're looking deeper into. And intraoperatively, we're looking at actually trialing a new product or leveraging new um, technology that's out there that is specifically for trauma patients where it is known that our antibiotics are not being given on time. So this will be something that we can use uh, in our trauma patients before they even get to the OR. Oh, and I'm at the end. <laughs> Thank you for that presentation, Dr. Uh, it's very, very illuminating. I'll open it up for trustees, yeah. Trustee Banerjee. Excellent presentation. Thank you so much. And 
being able to benchmark against national is so helpful because sometimes we benchmark against ourselves and then it's hard to know how we fare against like um, situations. So thank you. This this is um, just such an illuminating presentation. Trustee Cyan, Trustee Esteem. Um, I have a, a, a layperson's question. If the issues uh, tended to group into these TREM patients where something has sort of entered the body, if you will, um, the damage in some cases may already have been done in terms of the infection. And I understand these protocols to you know, intervene with prophylaxis and all that, but I guess what I'm trying to say is a certain amount of that, I guess, is unavoidable but that's why you're comparing us to like institutions, right? So you are correct. And one of the things um, in trauma uh, that is noted is that the wound class might be dirty. It is something that's dirty, but we do not have an infectious process as yet. So the intervention on the new technology that we're trying is for those dirty wound classes, we now have something so it does not then develop into an infection. Trustee Esteem, any questions, comments? Yeah, I noticed the data we're looking at is from Highland only. Is Highland the only service? In our... Very good observation. Both San Leandro and Alameda had one surgical site infection all of last year. You said zero? One. For, for both for both of the one. so they were two one from each hospital wow. um, this data however that is tracked in nhsn and we perform surveillance on is on admitted patients both alameda and san leandro have high volume of patients that are outpatient surgery particularly alameda so then that narrows the population that we draw on for uh, looking at uh, surgical site infections. Okay, that's helpful. My next question is about the environment, uh, humidity and temperature control. This is a new hospital, relatively. So what's happening? The ORs are not new. What? The what ORs. They recycle the building? <laughs> the issues with that are more in Alameda than any place. Yeah, and San Leandro it used to be, but not as much in Highland. Well, I'm so curious because that was listed as a factor. Yeah. Can you say more? Yes. So the factor at um, at Highland Hospital being uh, newer, the ear handling system was one ear handling, or I should say it was for the entire K building. So that includes the emergency room, that includes SPD, and that includes all of the OR. So where we need to have positive, so our pressure balances sometimes is off. And we also have um, uh, not so much humidity at Highland, but temperature. That temperature to keep it uh, when you're in the hot summer months, keep it cool enough, or when you're in the cold winter months, keep it warm enough where you don't then subsequently affect humidity because the humidity also needs to stay within a narrow range. Is there a so those, those are the challenges at, at, um, uh, at Highland and at the other two facilities. How do we overcome that? It fixes the HVAC. Well, I think I heard Mark in the room there. 
Yeah, our COO is here. Yes, it's, it's the fixes to our heating, ventilation, and air conditioning system, Trustee has seen, and we're aware of the issue. Um, and I'm trying to recall that the 27 million capital we're getting from the county has part of, is related to some of this we could be doing here. But we're really taking care of it at San Leandro. Alameda, um, we're shifting surgeries over there that um, the outcome would be, the, the negative outcome from the surgery um, would be less impacted with out of range humidity and temperature. We still have to record it, but when you're doing pain procedures in eyes, it isn't as great of a, an issue. As so we're trying to shift things around too. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Just one more question. Yeah. Is that like a design flaw that the HVAC wasn't separate for the OR? Is, is it in part of the build? Is it, does it go back that far it, or is it inevitable? In our case here at Highland, I think part of it's design, part of it, that building is 25 years old now, believe it or not, the gate building. And at Alameda, they haven't restored um, the infrastructure there since 1965. Something like that. So we're trying to bring that all up. So surgeries, just because I don't know the layout of the building, surgeries are happening in the older building, yes. not here in the newer site. Correct. Uh-huh. Gotcha. Okay. Thanks, Trustee. And, 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 and thank you, Mark. Technically, like he said, it's a, de uh, a partly designed flaw because uh, uh, coming from other healthcare systems uh, and hospitals, your ED, SPD and OR are usually not all on the same ear handling system. <laughs> yeah. one, one last comment to Trustee uh, Estine's question is, I recently started working with the county on master planning mm -hmm. where there are facilities here. Um, they're doing master planning on all of their own property with the exception of here. So when I was speaking with them, I said, well, why don't we just piggyback on? So I'm hopeful that we're going to be included. They're going to check into it, but um, over the next year, I'm hoping we can be part of uh, master planning here so we can kind of dream of what we want in the future. For example, our emergency room needs to get bigger. It needs to be upgraded. Um, it needs better design in terms of urgent care and observation beds. Um, I'd love to put surgery above the OR. So there's some very interesting master planning that we could do that longer term will help yeah. us with this. Yeah. And tell the county don't leave us behind. What's that? <laughs> tell the county don't leave us behind. We're still it, part of it's their property. It, it <laughs> took them though from the first comment about the ACT building till we moved in 15 years. And so our ED is already 25 years old another 15 years, we're up to 40 years old if we don't start planning now. Yeah. Thank you for that, Mr. Fransky. That's great forward thinking, necessary. Dr. Ellis, thank you for your presentation. And I'm just leaving with an interesting fact. One SSI at Alameda, one SSI at San Leandro in the past year. Is that what you said? Okay. Yeah. But she also said the denominator is quite small. Yes, yes. The denominator is smaller, but still one. But it won't be for long because we're shifting eyes. <laughs> we're shifting. Dr. Ellis, thank you for your presentation. Uh, with that, we will uh, close out item E. Item F is pretty easy planning calendar issue tracking. 
trustees, any issues or planning calendar items which are at play? <clears throat> Madam Chair, uh, forecast on uh, on uh, a retreat with that conflict with any QPSC uh, dates or anything like that? No, we are looking for uh, because uh, early May. Early May. Okay, yeah. got it. And then definitely the ambulatory we've spoken about, like the primary care would be something okay. that we will be thinking of at the full board level. But okay. Yeah. So no, no uh, uh, updates for the calendar for QPSC. Well, that will close um, uh, out item F, and that is the open session agenda items. Um, wow. Wow. Uh, well, so, well, not really, because we, we, we still got, I got, we still got to get through it closed very quickly. So um, uh, council's not here, but we're going to go into closed session to discuss the items as uh, uh, appended in the, uh, in the, in the package.